Well, roughly 12 hours from now, there'll be approximately 2 million people right here, not right here, but right there, at times, one Times Square, to ring in the new year. And there was a time in my life, probably back when I was in college, when I'm, I don't think my brain was really hitting on all cylinders, and I actually thought, hey, I think this would be a cool event to attend. Now, before you get your hopes up, fortunately, I was poor. And so this is a place where my poverty saved me from misery. Because everyone I've talked to who's ever been says it was like the worst experience ever. Now, I'm saying years later, my, my desire to be part of this event has uh, been radically diminished. And you may say, well, why? And, and one answer is, well, the context of my life is a lot different. Fifteen years ago, I was a, I was a young, single, 21-year-old, like, looking for adventure. And now I'm a married 36-year-old with three kids, you know, looking for sleep. <laughs> like, you know how it goes. And my, so my life has changed a lot in, the, in those 15 years. And what it's done is it's almost created a little bit of a disconnect between who I was then and who I am now. And, and if this level of disconnect is formed just within 15 years of my own life, how much greater is the disconnect between the life that I live and one that someone lived in Israel 2,000 years ago? That gap just got a lot bigger. You see, the world that we live in is drastically different than the world Jesus walked in. And so when we look at the scriptures, one thing we have to be careful of is not go directly to our default interpreting through our historical or cultural or experiential lens. Because Jesus is not a 21st century Westerner. He is a first century Jew. And so we have to, like, like our missionaries, we have to really be exegetes of a different culture so that we can understand what exactly is going on. And that's one of the reasons here at Wayside we're always going into the historical or the cultural background of a text because to unpack its meaning for us today, we have to go back also to what it meant then and what exactly was going on. And this morning's passage is a great example of that because in our passage this morning in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see Jesus have conflict once again with the Pharisees over the issue of the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, there's going to be seven different occasions where Jesus and the Pharisees are going to butt heads over the Sabbath. And when you consider the brevity of the Gospels, it's really pretty inc incredible that there's seven different instances where this is described. And the source, uh, this is like just the source of constant friction between Jesus and the Pharisees. And for us, it may, it may not make much sense because in, in our day and age for Christians, the Sabbath is maybe not that big of a deal. But for Jews in the day of Jesus, it was a massive deal, a massive deal. And so if you turn with me to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. It says, Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So here, here's the scene. Jesus is out ministering. He's out with his disciples. It's the Sabbath. 
And the, and the disciples are, are picking the grains of head, uh, picking uh, heads of grain and eating them. They're doing the equivalent of kind of like eating berries off of a bush, so to speak. And yet this bothers the Pharisees. Now, if you go read Deuteronomy 23, which you probably did this morning, you will know that the law permitted people to glean from the fields as they passed through them. That was permissible in the Mosaic law. What was not permissible was harvesting or preparing a meal. But the Pharisees choose to look at what the disciples are doing as preparing a meal. And so, therefore, it's unacceptable. And this is one of those instances where we've got to dig into the history and the culture because we read that and we go, are you kidding me? This is not a big deal at all. I mean, why are they so upset? And that makes us reflect for a minute upon this thing called the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses. And, and, and the Mosaic Law was like the Constitution. It was the penal code. It was, it was there for the, to, to, to define the Jewish way of life. And it had been so at that time for over a thousand years. And when you think about the Mosaic Law, it was pretty unique. And, and, and as such, the Jews were pretty distinct from their neighbors, and how they went about their business, how they lived. And the four areas that were most distinct, where this difference showed up the most, were in its dietary laws. So kind of you can eat this, but not that. It's purity rituals, being clean and unclean, washed, unwashed, all the different things you had to do to worship at the temple. The practice of circumcision. And then fourthly was the calendar, the worship calendar. Because the Jews had special feasts and holidays that were part of their calendar. And, but they had one day each week that was a huge deal. And that was the Sabbath. And the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday and ended at sundown on Saturday. And the word Sabbath literally means to rest, to cease. So it was a time where they were to rest from work. And they were to spend time worshiping God. But I want you to stop and think about how unique this was, Okay. This was an agrarian society they're living in. Farmers don't take breaks. People who work the land, they work. And every week, this group of folks is laying down their tools, and they're calling it a day, and they're done for 24 hours. In some ways, it's the equivalent of, I know you've been here before on a Sunday morning, preacher's going long, stomach is growling. And you're starting to think about, what am I going to have for lunch? And you get that craving, and you say, I'm going to go get me one of those gospel birds from Chick-fil-A. I'm going to go Chick-fil-A. But then you have that moment hit you where you go, oh, no. They're not open. <laughs> Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday. And you recognize that that's a real anomaly in a world of capitalism. That they would just take 24 hours, such a, a pivotal day of the week where people would go out and eat. And they say, yeah, we're not going to be open. And so Chick-fil-A really stands out in that regard. So the Sabbath is distinct. And not only is it distinct, it's extremely important. It is important to these people. Just to give you an example, in the second century, there's a war going on between the Jews and the Greeks. And there's about 1,000 Jews, and they're hid out in the cave. And it's the Sabbath. And the, Jew, the Greek army comes upon the Jews, and the Jews will not fight. They will not raise a sword, a spear, or a shield on the Sabbath, and the Greeks slaughter all of them. 
The Jews actually, the leadership actually goes back afterwards and says, okay, never mind, you can fight on the Sabbath if you're attacked. But that's how intensely they see this thing, okay? And the reason is because in the book of Deuteronomy, which is really just a long speech by Moses, where he's giving the law, he closes that sermon, he closes that speech, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is essentially what Moses says. He goes, Israel, here's the deal. If you are faithful, man, if you, if you follow me, if you live according to my design, I am going to bless your socks off. It's going to be amazing. But Israel, if you turn from me, if you turn from my law, I'm going to make you wish you were never born. And that's what Moses tells him. And then he goes on and he says, and by the way, this is going to happen. And the way you know you're going to be, the way you know you're being judged is you're going to have a really clear message. And here's the clue, is that someone's going to come into your land and they're going to take you over. And that's how you'll know. They're going to take you over. But then Moses says, but fear not. God will not forsake you. He's going to restore you. He's going to regather you. There's hope to come. But this is going to happen. And so this is really important because when Jesus is living, he's living, Israel is under the authority of Rome. They don't control their land. They're living under Caesar. And so they're wrestling with this, and they're wrestling with how should we respond to this reality. And, and men, there's different groups in Judaism at that time in the first century, and they all kind of go different ways. And the Sadducees say, well, let's do this. And the Essenes say, well, let's do this. And the Zealots say, well, let's do this. And the Herodians say, well, let's do this. But the Pharisees, here's what they say. We're going to stay within the Roman structure, but we're going to double down on the law. We're just going to double down because if we can really live out the law, God's going to restore. He's going to restore us. He's going to bless us, and all will be well. So that's their mindset, and it seems reasonable. But what ends up happening is something that happens to so many of us is they put fence. They build fences after fence after fence, and they put up barrier after barrier after barrier, and they put on burden upon burden upon burden. They take the commandments of God and they add and add and add and add and add to it. And what began as an earnest attempt to protect people from breaking the law results in them losing sight of the true meaning of the law and losing sight of the God who stood and stands behind it. And so as you think of our story, the Pharisees are, are picking grain, they're eating, the, excuse me, the disciples are, the Pharisees are angry, and, and Jesus responds, and he responds in a way that Jesus loves to respond, which is with a penetrating question. It's awesome. And in verse 3 it says, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful, for any to eat except the priest alone, how he gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus basically says, hey, Pharisees, hey, experts in the, in the scriptures and the law. You heard about a guy named David? Remember King David? 
Remember 1 Samuel chapter 21 where David's out fighting with his mighty men and they are in a place where they need food. And what does David do, guys? He goes into the house of God, the tabernacle, and he gets the, the bread that was meant for the priest alone and he has it and he shares it with his soldiers. And guess what? Is he rebuked? No. Does he get in trouble for that deed? No. He doesn't. And Jesus' point here is really twofold. For starters, he's saying, if David can do that, if David was free of the restraints of the letter of the law, how much more so is the Son of Man? Because I am way bigger than David. So the first is an issue of authority. The second is an issue of, of interpretation. Not only is he saying, I am the authority over the Sabbath, as the one who's the authority over the Sabbath, guess what? I'm the rightful interpreter. My interpretation of what is permissible and not permissible on the Sabbath is what is true, not yours, because you have perverted the law. Because the law was never meant to be applied in such a way that it neglected or negated the greatest commandment of all, which was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And so the Pharisees have held on so much to the letter of the law that they have forgotten the spirit of the law. They have missed the forest for the trees, and thus they have forsaken the greatest commandment of all, the one on which all the law and the prophets hangs. And this calloused attitude of the Pharisees is further displayed in the next interaction, found in verses 6 through 11. This is what it says. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. So we have another Sabbath. We have another altercation. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. He's presented with a man with a withered hand, most likely plotting by the Pharisees. Because you're, get this, they didn't perceive that you'd be allowed to heal on the Sabbath. The Pharisees taught that you could uh, have a baby on the Sabbath. Thank you, Pharisees. Right? That you could circumcise on the Sabbath or that you could save a life. But medical care, healing, no. That's not going to work. And Jesus knows what's going on and he calls them out in a powerful way. And he says, hey guys, what do you think? Should I heal this man? Should I do good? Should I show compassion? Should I show love for my fellow human? Or should I just completely disregard him and not do that which I am capable of doing? And all he gets from them is silence. Nothing. It's how callous they are. If you look at a parallel passage uh, to this in Mark chapter 3, this is how Mark describes it. He says, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. His hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. 
Interestingly, this is the only place in the Gospels where it is explicitly mentioned that Jesus is angry. This is it. Now, we would say there's other times where he certainly showed righteous indignation, whether it's in the temple and he's flipping tables. or. But this is the only time that the writers say he's angry, and they use the word for it. And so the question that I think bubbles up to the surface is what is it about the Pharisees that so rankles his feathers? What is it about the Pharisees? These are not the only guys. And as a matter of fact, these are the religious conservatives of the day. These are folks who care deeply about the law, and yet time and time again, Jesus is rebuking them more than he does most other groups. And the question is, why? And and I pondered that this weekend, this past week, and, and I really landed where I think he comes after the Pharisees because they held a place of leadership. Leadership. They were the ones that were esteemed by the people. They were the ones that were looked to by the common man to lead them. And yet they were failing. And and their leadership had two catastrophic mistakes, two catastrophic errors. And the first one is they lost sight of the grace of God. They lost sight of the grace of God. The Mosaic law was never meant to replace grace. It was never meant to compete against grace. It was given as a blessing to the people of Israel that they might know the holiness of their God, that they might experience fellowship with that holy God. And that is only possible through grace. From from the very beginning, the only way we can ever relate to God is by grace. And the Pharisees had lost sight of that. And then I started thinking, you know, it's kind of ironic because this happens to us too. Is is holiness and grace go together? You ever thought about that? Holiness and grace go together. And when you deny one, you lose both. When you deny one of them, you lose both of them. Because if I deny the grace of God, then now I am, I am portraying that his standard of righteousness is something that I can actually attain by my own effort. I don't need his grace because I'm going to go match his holiness. So I've reduced his holiness. On the flip side, if you forsake his holiness, then you're not in need of what? Of grace. Because it's not that big of a deal. You don't need to be redeemed. You just need to do your best. So when you lose either holiness or grace or lose an emphasis on either one of them, you end up losing both of them. And secondly, by distorting God's grace and his holiness, the Pharisees became stumbling blocks for Israel. And the people that they were called to lead into fellowship, they ended up building barriers that kept them out. And it it reminds me of two pretty, I think, significant truths. And one of them is the importance of leadership. The importance of leadership. Their failing to lead well was devastating to the people of Israel. 
So much so that Jesus looks out and he says, they are like sheep without a shepherd. Their leaders have failed them. So leadership is essentially important. And secondly, the Pharisees remind us of something. You can disagree. But I think they remind us of something that almost all Christians struggle with, which is actually grace. I actually think we are somewhat uncomfortable with the idea of grace. Like we celebrate it, we thank God for it, we give him praise because of it, we understand it intellectually and how it processes and how it works within the cosmic transaction of Christ's righteousness. But deep inside, we desperately want to contribute to our salvation. We want to earn it. We want to show God we were worth it. And that in some way, we're deserving of the cross. At least more than those other churches that meet down the street. I mean, we're really the ones who kind of deserve it, if anybody deserves it. And that's our mindset. And so we begin to create avenues where God's grace turns into merit. And and we've really done this throughout our church history. It's one of the reasons we had the Protestant Reformation. Because whether it be through the sacraments or just through being intellectually superior or through attaining certain things or refraining from certain others, whatever the case may be, the problem is the same. When grace is turned into merit, when grace is turned into something that is earned, it ceases to be grace. It is no longer grace. And it may even, now hear me, it may even evolve out of good intentions. It may even evolve out of good intentions. But when you mix the merit of mankind in God's gospel of grace, you poison the gospel. You destroy it. And you destroy the beauty of our Savior who redeemed us. And that is a huge deal to God. The Pharisees lost sight of grace, and ultimately they lost sight of God. And in doing so, they failed to lead their people, and they consistently conflicted with the one that they were called to worship. And it's a tragedy. It really is. It's a tragedy. And it can happen to us. We can never lose sight of God's grace. We are saved by grace from the moment we believe until the last breath we take. And nothing ever changes that. Ever. Now, I began this morning by saying that I'm not a huge fan of New Year's Eve. And someone in the 915 was like, well, my birthday is New Year's Eve. And I was like, well, I'm not saying I don't like your birthday. <laughs> saying I don't like New Year's Eve. But I do like New Year's Day. I do like New Year's Day because I like the idea of new beginnings. I'm actually into New Year's resolutions. As a matter of fact, last year, my New Year's resolution, our, our, our family phrase was trim the fat. We were going to work out and we were going to work on our checkbook. And we failed miserably at both. But 2018 is a new year. All right. I'm back in the saddle this year. This year it's going to be different. But, but just in closing, as we enter into a new year, I, I do want to give you two resolutions 
from this passage that I think if you, if you live by them, you will experience um, great blessing and intimacy with God. And the first of these is found in, in verse 5, where Jesus states, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus has the right to do what he wants on the Sabbath because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And creatorship implies authority. Creatorship implies ownership. Now, I, I am not handy whatsoever. I do not claim to be. That is a, I, I missed that tree on the way down. I just, I'm, my brother got all the blessing when it comes to handiness. As a matter of fact, when something breaks at the house, I literally... Tell Victoria, hey, let's call your dad. Because you can't shame a man with no pride, right? So I will, I will call my father-in-law to come fix something. But if I were handy, if I were handy, and, and one day I'm like a, you know, a lumberjack and I'm out in my backyard, and I'm like, I'm going to cut down a tree and build me a table. And if I cut down that tree and take the wood and, and, and shape it into a table, the reality is I can do what I want to with it. And if I want to paint that thing silver and black, and paint Kawhi Leonard's face on the top, I can do that because it's my table. And creatorship implies ownership. It implies authority. And Jesus is the rightful authority of the Lord of the Sabbath, as the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus is the rightful authority over our life because he created us. He made us. And we live in a day and age and in a culture that really values individual freedom. And there are so many good things about that. I do not want to throw freedom out with the, do the baby out with the bathwater. And many people have died that we might be free. So there are great things about individual freedom. But there's a dark side. And in our day and age, what the dark side of individual freedom is, is it has grown into a worship of self. A worship of self. Where the highest form of worship is really self-expression. And to impinge on somebody's ability to fully express themselves is the biggest sin that our culture sees. And yet, God has the right to make certain demands of us because God is the one who created us. He created us. And it is only through God and because of God that we have life and breath to begin with. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes that, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God, that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And, and as we enter into this new year, let me just ask you a simple but penetrating question, have you given God the authority of your life? Like, all of it. If, if your life were a house, is God just renting out a room to, helping you pay the, to help you pay the bills? Or is he the authority? Is he the owner? Or some of y'all saying, no, there's, he is the owner, but there's some rooms he cannot go into. There's some closets that I've locked, thrown away the key. He's not allowed in those. Maybe it's an addiction that you haven't faced or that you're unwilling to tackle. Maybe it's a relationship you're unwilling to let go of. Maybe it's a, a crumbling marriage, issues with parenting. Maybe it's a past mistake that haunts you. 
Maybe it's a closet full of unforgiveness and bitterness that you're saying, I can't let him go in there. What is it that you need to let go of right now? What was that first thing that comes to your mind, that came to your mind, that you need to let go of and say, Lord, have your way in me, for you are my creator, my redeemer, and you have the authority over every inch of my life. Creatorship implies ownership, and God created each one of us. And that would be a hard pill to swallow if it weren't for the fact that he's so good. He's so good. And as our authority, we can trust in him. For his design is for his glory and for our good. His design is for his glory and for our good. And when we let go and allow him to have the authority of every area of our life, we are then able to experience the fullness of blessing and intimacy that he alone can give. For he is good. So we are to trust, recognize him as our authority in every area and then trust in him for he is good and he cares for us. I finished with a a story from when I was in college. My, my best friend in college was a guy named Trey who was born without the sense of smell. True story, could not smell. So he could not even taste food, poor guy. So I always said, Trey, you should be like the healthiest eater there's ever been. Because I would see him eat all this pizza and nachos and stuff like that. I'd be like, you can't even taste it. Why are you eating that stuff? And he said, well, I used to I judge food by the way it looks and by its texture. Said, okay, just have a mix of salad in, Trey. Come on, man. But this guy couldn't smell. And we were at Camp Canicuck together, this summer camp in Missouri where we served in college. And uh, one day I'm walking down the street, and he's in one of the cabins. And uh, there's smoke coming up from the cabin. But Trey cannot smell smoke. He can't smell it. And so me and another uh, counselor say, Trey, get out of there. Get out of the cabin. And he hops up and he, and he runs out of the cabin. He sees that it's smoking and we end up taking care of the cabin and nothing happens. But you see, when I yelled at Trey to get out, he didn't say, yeah, don't tell me what to do. Tell me how to live my life, Mike. I'll, I'll come out when I want to come out. No. Trey knew that I loved him. My past actions had predicted my future actions. So when if I said get out, he knows there's good reason for that. I had proven my love. And yet how many of us sit in spiritual cabins, unable to smell, with billows of smoke rising from the roof? And when someone in your life, or maybe God himself through his word, is saying, get out, our response is, thanks but no thanks. I can handle this. I know what I'm doing. And I'll get out when I see the flames. That's when I'll get out. The God who created us and gave us life has authority over our life. And praise be to him. That as our authority, his desire is our good. 
for his design is for our glory and for our good. We even see that in the Sabbath. Back in Mark 2 in the parallel passage I talked about, Jesus tells them, man was not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for man. It was never meant to be a burden. It was a blessing for you. Because God's design is for his glory and for our good. He is the son of man. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And my prayer for us as we enter 2018 is that we would make him the Lord of our life in every way possible. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just confess to you that you are good and that you are our authority, that you are the potter, that we are the clay, that you are our judge, our master, our Lord, and yet you are also our friend and our father. And that when we walk in obedience to you, We walk in the way of life that you have provided for us. God, we also confess to you that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. That is, by grace, a gift that you purchased on the cross. We cannot improve upon perfection. And if your standard of righteousness is the righteousness of God, then there's nothing I can contribute to making me right with you. But it is by receiving your work on our behalf. For when we place our faith in you, O Lord, it is your righteousness that is given to us. The righteousness of God. And we stand justified before our holy God in full display of his holiness and in full display of his infinite grace. And so, Lord, I pray as we enter 2018, that you would help us as a people and as a church put everything in the offering plate, our entire life, and that we would say, Lord, have your way in me. Nothing's off limits. Nothing is off limits. You have the key to every room. You have the combo to every lock. You are Lord, and you love me, and I can trust in you. So, Lord, I lift this people up to you. We thank you for our missionaries. We thank you for the work they're doing around the globe. Would you be near to them? God, would we faithfully lift them in prayer? And, Lord, would we work together and do it all for the glory of God, knowing that you, our Father in heaven, sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And by the Spirit, we recognize the Son, receiving his righteousness to the glory of the Father where we will praise you for all eternity. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand and sing this last song with us?